Amen. I want to tell you a story this morning to kind of enter us into Holy Week, to enter us into uh, preparing our hearts for communion. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians, they would take communion every week when they gathered together for worship. They would have a love feast. And at the end of that love feast, a big covered dish meal, they would celebrate communion. And over time, it just became routine. It just became a ritual for them, something that you just did, just like coming to church, part of your weekly routine. And so he warned them that there was a danger in making this routine. There was a danger in taking this for granted, that we need to really encapsulate in our hearts the power of this service, the power of this communion, the power of this remembrance. So this morning, we wanted to make it special. So many times in services as we do communion, it's kind of tacked on at the end or added at the beginning, just kind of to get it out of the way. This morning, since it's Palm Sunday and we're preparing for Resurrection Sunday, and we understand the power of that Holy Week and all that took place in that last week of Jesus' life, I wanted to make communion central to what we do this morning. I wanted it to be the service. And so before we do that, I wanted to tell you a little story that helps maybe open our eyes to the power that God was planting, even in the Old Testament, of what this table means and what it means to celebrate Easter. Now, many of you know the history of the Israelites, the history of the Jewish people. We know after they came out of captivity and uh, Moses delivered them, he couldn't go into the promised land, so Joshua took over. They crossed the Jordan River. They began to defeat the armies. They defeated Jericho. They began to defeat the other armies that were in the promised land, in Canaan. And as they defeated them, they didn't have a king. They had a group of leaders that are called the judges. And the book of Judges describes those leaders. And those leaders for about 200 years led the nation of Israel. People like Gideon, people like Deborah. Uh, Last week we learned about Eli. Eli was the last of the judges. He ruled for 40 years. He had a grandson who was named Ichabod. The glory had departed. We talked about that last week. This idea that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and taken out of Israel for the first time. And so God's presence had left them. And the people of Israel began, because of all this turmoil, began to cry out to God, we want a king. Like all these other nations around us, we want a king. But the reason they had judges instead of a king was for them to understand that they didn't need a king. They had God. They had Yahweh. He was their king. He was all they needed. But the people began to cry out, give us a king. And so Samuel the prophet went before the Lord, and the Lord told him to go to Saul and anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, when we talk about Saul, Saul gets a bad reputation because we look at his story from the end to the beginning. We see what happens to Saul, and so we judge him according to the end of his days instead of the whole picture. Saul was a man after God's heart. Saul was an anointed man of God when he became the first king of Israel. And he served God. But like many people who are put in leadership, politicians and those in leadership, he wanted more power than God had assigned him. And so he began to try to usurp the authority of the priest. And we have a story in 1 Samuel where they take over a nation, they defeat a nation, and God told them to make an offering, but to wait for the priest to come and consecrate the offering. Well, Saul didn't want to wait. Saul decided, I'm going to do what the priest is supposed to do, and I'm going to consecrate an offering. And he disobeyed God. And because of that disobedience, God cast judgment on him and told him, your line will not be the kings of Israel. Because of your disobedience, your line will not follow after you. And very shortly after that, he sends the prophet to Jesse's house. And Samuel shows up at Jesse's house outside of Bethlehem, which is significant. We learned of that at Christmas. 
He shows up to Jesse's house and Jesse has all of these sons and God says, this is where you will find the next king of Israel. And so the, the prophet Samuel goes and looks at the sons and says, what about this one? One of the, the oldest son, a great warrior. He said, no, that, God said, that's not him. And he goes all the way through his sons and God never said which one was going to be king. So he asked Jesse, do you have any more sons? Just that all we have is the youngest. He's out tending sheep. But surely he can't be the one that God would pick to be the king of Israel. And he calls the youngest in, and young David, who was a shepherd boy, came in, and God said, this is the one. And so right there, Samuel put his hands on David's head and anointed him as the next king of Israel. But the only problem is this is before Goliath. This is before anything else happens. And so David gets this anointing to be the next king, but it's not going to be for another decade before he actually becomes king. And it's incredible for us to think about that God would put that on David. And sometimes God does the same thing to you and I. God gives you a dream. God gives you a vision. God tells you, this is what I'm going to do in your life. And we think that we're going to wake up the next day and step into that. That's not the way God operates. And David had to learn through that decade that God was preparing him to be the type of king he wanted. Well, Saul wasn't happy about this. You had right after that, David defeated Goliath, and he became a hero of Israel. And so Saul brought him into his family, and he married him off to his first daughter, Michael. And he also made him a brother-in-law to the anointed next king, Saul's oldest son, who was Jonathan. And so he becomes best friends with his brother-in-law, Jonathan. So much so that Saul, when he gets jealous because the people of Israel were praising David, they would say, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. That Saul got jealous and he decided to kill David. Well, Jonathan found out about it and he helped David escape his own father. And for the next decade, David was on the run time and time again, Saul chasing him, Saul trying to kill him. In that time, David had three opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't do it. Because he didn't want to usurp God's authority. He knew that God had a timeline. And when it would happen, it would happen. And finally, after all that time, and, and matter of fact, that time was a difficult time for David. Uh, some of the greatest psalms we have in the book of Psalms come during that time when David was being chased by Saul, scared for his life, not knowing. You know, here he had this promise that you're going to be the next king, but he didn't even know what his next day would hold. And so finally, after a period of time, God gets tired of Saul and he allows the Philistines, who were the nation of Israel's greatest enemy, he allows the Philistines to come in and they defeat Saul's army and they kill Saul and they kill Jonathan. And David gets word that Saul is killed and that Jonathan, his best friend, is killed and he grieves. He grieves that the king is dead. Matter of fact, some men cut Saul's head off and brought it to David and said, look, Saul has been defeated and David was so distraught that they would touch God's anointed that he had those men killed for doing that. But now David has become king. And he just didn't become king overnight. He had to fight some battles. There were factions in Israel. Saul still had a group of people out there that wanted his line, wanted his line to become the next king. There were other factions. And so David fought these battles, eventually conquering Jerusalem and bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And that's where you have in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, uh, or 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, the story of him bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem. And as he brings the Ark in, he's dancing. And you remember, Remember the story that his wife, one of his wives, his first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, uh, began to mock him for dancing in front of all the people, saying, you're, you're not acting like a king. And he said, if, if, 
this is the way I worship, this is the way I worship. I'm not worried about anyone else thinking anything about me except God. And because of Michael's condemnation, she's struck barren. And so David becomes king of all of Israel. One of the first things he does when he becomes king is he decides he wants to honor his best friend, Jonathan. And that's where the story picks up that I want to read to you this morning as we prepare and look at what the Lord has for us. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now understand, who does he want to show kindness? For Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And Ziba said, yes, your servant. And the king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul who I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, for there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Lodibar. So I want you to think about this. David says, I want to do something for the sake of my best friend. I want to do something to honor him. Is there anyone left? And the servant comes and says, there is one. Jonathan has a son named Mephibosheth. But he's living in Lodabar. Now, all we know about Mephibosheth, we find in 2 Samuel chapter 4, I want to read to you. 2 Samuel chapter 4, 4, it says this. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. For he was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that his dad had been killed, his grandfather had been killed. And his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. And his name was Mephibosheth. So David said, is there anyone out there? He said, there is one, this crippled son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, but he is way out in Lodabar. Now Lodabar in Hebrew means the place of no harvest. Now that's a great way of saying, uh, of sprucing up what Lodabar was. Lodabar was on the other side of the Jordan River, out in the middle of the desert. It was a place of desolation. It's one of those kind of places where you didn't go to Lodabar unless you had to. The only reason you went to Lodabar is because you didn't have any place else to go. And symbolically, Lodabar has become a place of shame, a place of, of, of hurt, a place of pain, a place of difficulty, a place of suffering. And so think about Mephibosheth. Think about this son of Jonathan. He is the prince. He's the grandson of Saul. He is the first son of the first son. He is in line to be king, but when Saul is killed... His nurse drops him, it breaks both of his legs, he becomes handicapped, and he is hiding out in the worst place that you can ever find, probably afraid for his life. Imagine the switch and what goes on in his life. Here he is hiding, maybe afraid that David is going to come kill him or some of David's followers are going to come kill him. He even changes his name, we find out, because he doesn't want people to know where he is. But David said, for the sake of his father, I want to do something special for him. Look what it says. So King David had him brought from Lodabar. Now, sometimes scripture doesn't paint the good picture for us that we need. This, this one little passage doesn't really understand. Can you imagine living in Lodabar? You're an outcast. You're, no one else is taking you in. It's on the other side of the tracks. It's where, and all of a sudden, the king's men come marching in. The fear that must have been there. You have all of these horses and this pageantry and this show coming in looking for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth probably got word and was scared to death. This is it. He had a wife. He had kids at this time. He probably looked at him and said, listen, they're going to take me and kill me. David's men are here. Everything is over. My life has come to an end. 
And David said, go to Lodabar and bring him back. And so it said, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he replied, your servant. David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all of the lands that belong to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, Who is your servant that you should notice such a dead dog like me? Now, I don't know about you, but that is a perfect picture of what the cross does. You see, every one of us in this room has been to Lodibar. Every one of us in this room, some of you are still there. A place of struggle, a place of pain, a place of difficulty. A place where you're trying to outrun your past. A place where you're, you're trying to hide from all of those mistakes that you've made. A place where you're living in fear of what might happen tomorrow. What, who might show up? What bad thing is on the doorstep? And then all of a sudden the king comes and says, For the sake of your father, not for anything you did, Mephibosheth, but for the sake of your father, I am going to restore you everything that was your rights. See, that's the message of Easter this morning. See, those of us who have been in Lodabar recognize the power of the resurrection of Jesus. That when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, when he was dead and buried and rose again on the third day through his resurrection, he offers the opportunity for all of us in Lodabar to be restored and redeemed. Not because you deserve it, not because you're kind of good, not because you come to church, not because you've done some good things. No, for the sake of Jesus Christ, God offers us hope this morning. See, God offers us salvation. And as we begin this Easter week, as we begin what God did on the cross and remember that opportunity, this morning it's time for some of you to leave Lodabar. For some of you to leave your suffering and pain, to leave your guilt and shame, to leave those things that you think you've hidden away behind you and receive the restoration of the king. See, he went from being a pauper with a death sentence on his head on the other side of the tracks to being a part of the king's family for the sake of his love for his father. That same opportunity is for you and I this morning. That same promise is for you and I if we'll receive the gift of Jesus Christ. See, that is the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Freely, by grace, through faith, you can leave Lodibar. You can leave your place of shame and walk into the hands of the king. Would you pray with me as we prepare for communion? In our story, Mephibosheth has been restored. He's been redeemed. All that he had lost, all that was his father's and his grandfather's has been given to him. But that's not the end. So listen to what David says. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and bring to the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, the grandson, is now your master, and he will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant, we will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at king's table like one of the king's sons. 
Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's households were servants of Mephibosheth. And verse 13 ends the chapter by saying, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, even though he was crippled in both feet. You see, four times in those three verses, there's an emphasis there. See, David didn't just restore him and redeem him and give him what was lost. He invited him to be a part of the family. He invited him to come to the king's table. And in ancient times, being invited to the king's table was a huge, huge honor. The only people who got to sit at the king's table were other kings, other leaders, other rulers, and the family of the king. But what David said is, not only am I going to give you back all that you've lost, but now you are a part of my family. You see, church, what Jesus Christ does for you and I is not just bring forgiveness. It's not just restoration and redemption. He doesn't just take our lives that were meaningless and without purpose and give us purpose and give us hope and allow us to follow him. He also makes us a part of the family. Paul tells us in Ephesians that you are now children of God, sons and daughters of the king, with the right to call him Abba, which means daddy. You see, now you are a part of the family. And so what we do today is to celebrate that honor by coming to the table of the king. Before we sing the old rugged cross, there's one more thing I wanted to show you from our story. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's two words given that are translated crippled. Two words given in the same chapter, different words though. Early in the chapter, in verse 3, where the servant Ziba is talking about the son of Jonathan who is crippled, it's the word noke in Hebrew. And noke doesn't just mean handicapped or crippled. Noke means broken. Means broken in not just body, broken in spirit. Broken in all that you have. And it's interesting because while he was in Lodibar, that's where Mephibosheth was. He was broken. Every part of him was broken. But interestingly enough, when you get to verse 13, at the end of the chapter, after he's been restored, after he's been redeemed, after everything is made right, and he's sitting at the king's table, they use a different word. They use the word pasash. And pasash just means physically unable. So he's gone from broken to be physically unable. There's a significant meaning there. See, he's still crippled. He's still handicapped, but he's not broken anymore. He's not broken in spirit. See, it'd be a great story if if at the end, after David restored him, maybe God healed him. Wouldn't that have made the story so cool if after he was restored and after he came to the king's table, if all of a sudden God would have said, I'm going to set your legs right. You're going to be healed. But that's not always the way God operates. See, sometimes God does heal us mentally and physically and emotionally. But sometimes we're still left with the conditions that this world puts on us. Sometimes we're still left with the struggles we have, the sickness, disease, difficulties in relationships. See, even though you've been saved, even though you've been redeemed, those conditions sometimes still afflict us. But what did change was his position. You see, if your condition doesn't change, 
but your position changed, everything changes. Because now, because his position changed, the way he saw his condition was different. And what redemption does for you and I is even though we are still going to struggle with the things of this world, I now see those things differently. While I may struggle with hurt and disappointment and disease and death and anger and those things that the world presses in on me, my position as a child of the king helps me recognize that no matter what the world throws at me, God is still in control. He's still on his throne. And because of my position as a child of the king, the way I see those things now changes. They do not break me in spirit. They do not tear me down. They allow me the promise of God to stand strong. So what I want you to see as we get ready to close this morning from Mephibosheth's life is just like he went from a prince and a king in waiting and had everything for him to the fall of Lodibar, God never gave up on him. And David was the agent of change. And no matter where you are this morning, God's not giving up on you. He will send the army to find you where you are and to bring you before the king. He wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to change your position this morning if you'll let him. That is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the message of Holy Week and Easter. Would you stand with me as we sing? Mm -hmm.